0: Thank you for listening to the Troy Podcast, where we promote, educate, inspire, and entertain creators of all things related to fantasy and science fiction. Hi, this is Carson with Troy, and I have with me Davis Ashura. Davis um, is a fantasy author that has two complete series out, and he's working on a third. Am I correct in saying that? That's right. Perfect. Um, Davis, go ahead and introduce yourself. Tell about your your series that are complete and your upcoming book. Um,
1: Hi, I'm Davis Ashura. I've written... The Cast and the Outcast, which is an epic fantasy series. Um, and the world building that for that is based on my own culture. It's a lot of Indian influences, especially from my part of, of India, which is Andhra Pradesh. And then I wrote what started out as a uh, young adult fantasy series. Uh, and, and it starts out young adult intentionally because it was written for my teenage son. So the first book is young adult. It's called The Chronicles of William Wilde. And um and then now I'm working on a third series called The Instrument of Omens, but all of the series actually take place in my uh, in one universe and there's uh, two characters that sort of um, transfer from one series to the next or the they're the they what ties uh, the three series together. And so there you have it. Oh, and the current series is my love letter to Wheel of Time and Lord of the Rings. Oh really? Yes yeah it was essentially written that way
0: let's let's talk about this for for a minute. um what were some of the books that when you were younger, kind of got you into fantasy or science fiction?
1: So it would probably start with Greek mythology. I uh, read a bunch of Greek Greek mythology, but then in terms of actual fiction, it started with uh, The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings that I read those when I was uh, twelve years old and then um I actually liked science fiction more when I was younger. And so there was a lot of Arthur C. Clarke. There was a book called Dolphin Island, which I probably read 30 times. Um, Isaac Asimov. But looking back on those on those books, the one that probably has stood the test of time for me, as much as Lord of the Rings would be, Riddle Master of Head by Patricia McKillop and Dragon Riders of Pern by Anne McCaffrey, uh, just because of the way they um, resonated with who I was at the time and and, and the stories that I still want to tell. So those were the, the books that were my formative influences. And then as I got older, it was, uh, you know, The Belgariad by uh, David Eddings, Thomas Covenant by Stephen Donaldson, Terry Brooks's Shannara series. I absolutely loved, loved those books. Um, and then, of course, Wheel of Time um, was sort of an explosion like, I didn't know you could do this. And, uh, and so from the time I started reading Wheel of Time, I've always wanted to write something of that scale and something with that depth of history where it feels real, like the world you're reading about really exists and and the author didn't create it. He just happened to find some manuscripts and, uh, is transcribing events that happen in that place.
0: It does transport you, um, you know before we started we talked about david farland and and one of the things that he says makes a great story is wonder and right the will of time really does transport you to to make you feel like you are in a different place to where that wonder is like what's going to be around the next bend.
1: yes especially the history the the depth of history just lends such a strong foundation uh for the rest of the for the entire series i i just think it's a it's a great series and um I'm glad that it's going to become more popular again when the when the TV show comes out.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm excited for that too because, you know, Rising Tide raises all ships. And so oh, yeah. the more people that watch that series and, and get hooked on that will create more fans for every fantasy author out there.
1: Yeah, and and it's more of a, you know, compared to Game of Thrones – it definitely has I think more of a magic element as far as an integral part of the story uh compared to Game of Thrones, which has a little bit more of a low fantasy element, even though you know they have dragons and things like that in the north. just how well the magic is woven into wheel of time I, I just think it's it's going to be really cool and it's going to open up eyes you know for people to see uh just how wonderful the fantasy genre really is. those who don't really uh, read about it or read into it.
0: So you have created a world of your own. Um, How has um, the will of time influenced you on how to create that? Or did it at all? It might not have.
1: Yeah, it absolutely did. So um, what I wanted to do with, with Instrument of Omens, which is the current series, is I wanted to set it in a world where I have a long breadth uh, of history that I can draw on with countries that have gone, countries that have crumbled, and new countries that have risen up. And they refer to wars and battles and and historical figures, just like we would refer to Napoleon or Genghis Khan or Alexander the Great, you know, these conquerors, or or even just mythic figures from the past that you know, just continue to have some sort of influence on on the present, and so that's what I started with. Is I wanted a, a historical background, and then I wanted to place my setting on top of that, and constantly have them refer to the past, as though, of course, this is just part of our past, and and just make it seem like they're really just talking about a world that exists, and and so um, whenever you read. Jordan, he does that a lot with Arthur Hawkwing, and uh, with uh, you know the different nations that used to exist and then were destroyed, including where Rand comes from, and uh, and that's what I wanted to tap into is is that sense of well, like David Farland would say, sense of wonder about a history that isn't ours.
0: You know, one thing that I think Robert Jordan did really well talking about history is you know you had the Forsaken that lived in ancient time and they said over and over like referencing different places and they're like well i don't know like i didn't live in this time i don't know what this is And you know so it kind of drills home that you know this is a different world that even they remember
1: yeah and and that's going to be interesting because you know you have the the ring rates and lord of the rings you have the forsaken and wheel of time and before I created Instrument of Omens, when I was writing William Wilde, that's actually where the genesis of, of the world of Seminole, where Instrument of Omens takes place, where it began. Um, I mean, I'd always wanted to write this for years and years. And when I was writing William Wilde, that germ of a idea started taking root. And, you know, I have my titans who are, you know, the ancient ring rates and the forsaken. And I can't wait to introduce them.
0: Oh, nice. So I got a couple of questions running through my mind. Uh, the first one, you know, you talked about how you wanted to build a history and the setting and on top of that. Is that where you start when you want to begin a project? Do you start with the setting and kind of the history and build from there? Or do you start with the character or you have a plot kind of in de- uh, idea that you want to do? For the first two
1: series, it was very much character uh, first. And so I, I created the characters and then I built the world. Uh, around them because I knew what I wanted them to eventually do. And and so the world came after the characters. And with Instrument of Omens, I didn't have to worry about creating the characters so much because I wanted a really tight camera lens on two characters throughout the entire series. And I already know who they are. Um, they've existed in my other books. And so I know who they are, and I didn't have to worry about creating them. Now I had to create... The secondary characters to support them and all the other races, but in some ways that, that because I knew how I wanted the world to look and how I wanted politics to be, and so the characters sort of grew out of that. The secondary ones did. I mean,
0: okay, perfect. And then um, the second question I had that that was related was: you said that this um, idea had been germinating in your mind uh, for a while. How do you right. uh, determine? like what ideas you want to pursue and what you want to set aside or even like how do you determine, okay, this is a good idea that I want to pursue versus a bad idea. Time.
1: Time. If you have enough time, you can write anything you want. You just don't have enough time. You have to make choices. And sometimes the dumbest ideas though can turn out to be really cool. I mean, there's that, there's that famous story uh, about Jim Butcher, and I'm not really clear whether it's real or not, but it's a really cool story. And that is he had this bet with uh, with somebody that uh, you can't create a great story out of a dumb idea. And he said, well, I can create a great story out of two dumb ideas, so give it to me. And so he said, a Lost Room and Legion and Pokemon. And from that, you had an entire series, you know, that, that was born out of that. So sometimes the dumbest ideas don't necessarily turn out to be dumb stories. So I don't... i. I would love to have more time to write because I have a lot of dumb ideas rattling around <laughs> in my head.
0: What Davis just referred to, if those people that want to look into this, is the Codex Alera by um, yep. Jim Butcher. That is,
1: that is such a great series. The first book, I wasn't loving it, but man, I was so glad I kept I kept on with the second uh, second
0: book onward. Yeah, it's a, it's a great book. Um, let's let's talk about you and some of your writing habits. So you have a full time job. Are you correct on that? Correct. And you're a doctor. Yep. I saw. Yes.
1: Yeah. So I'm a, I'm a full-time physician. I own my own practice and uh, I'm an endocrinologist. So that's really two jobs because you're practicing medicine and you got to run a small business too. And then I write on the side.
0: So what are your, do you have like daily writing habits or weekly? Like what are some of your writing habits? So
1: I go to work, see my patients, come home, hang out with the family if they want to, uh, eat dinner. And then usually at around uh, 7 or 8 o'clock, I come into this room, I study, and uh, I've become more efficient over time. It used to be from 8 to 11 I would write. Usually I, the goal is to write about, was, was, is always to write one scene, which is about 1,300 uh, words in one day. But now I've gotten a little bit more efficient as I've gotten better at writing, I guess. And now that takes me about an hour and a half to two hours. And then I call it a day. And then I read whatever I feel like or watch some TV. And I do that Monday through Thursday. And then Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, I try to write two or three scenes on each of those days.
0: Okay, so the days you have off, you kind of up your output a little bit. I do. and it, It's become a little bit harder,
1: though, to keep that schedule just because there's just been a lot more asked of me um, to do other stuff, whether it's with the office uh, with the work there, or with other stuff, with um, with just other commitments, so I haven't been quite as good about that in the past. I'd say four or five months, but that's the goal. So hopefully, I can get back to it because I really do enjoy writing.
0: Well, one thing that you know somebody that's watching this or listening to this can learn is having a full-time job. There's no, ex- I mean, you don't, that, you can't use that as an excuse. Um, you know, especially right. you're a doctor, like and you set aside time late at night to, to do your craft.
1: I actually decided I couldn't take, um, I didn't decide I couldn't, I decided I wouldn't use lack of time as an excuse. Uh, so I, you know, before the pandemic, I also went to the gym and worked out four days a week. So I'd always make the time, but I, you'd have to sacrifice it elsewhere. And for me, for a long time, the sacrifice was I didn't get to read where I didn't get to watch TV. And, you know, that's fine. But really, the lesson that I learned was from another author. She was raising a special needs child. And she would have breaks of like 10 or 15 minutes every two hours where she wouldn't be full-time taking care of him. And she would use those 15 minutes to write. And that would be how her life progressed day by day, week by week, month by month. And she still wrote, and I thought, You know, she she wasn't complaining about her life. She was just saying, "This is how I have to live." And I thought, "Well, I could I could find fifteen minutes to write." So, I did. But I, you know, don't get to watch as much TV as I wish I could.
0: Yeah, you have to make uh, choices. That's for sure. And what what's a priority and what's not? Right. You know, I don't I don't know if you know Peter Brett or have read any of his works. Yes. But I talked to him on Tuesday, and yeah, he wrote his first book. Uh, basically
1: on his phone yeah on his blackberry yeah it's a great story because i think he was traveling back and forth to work in new york city and he basically wrote his his first book
0: what was that book called the warded man
1: yeah the warded man i wanted to say the painted man because i think that's the title in the uk but yeah, yeah that is basically wrote it on um on his blackberry or something like that
0: that's an, yeah. I asked him how much um, of it. And he said 60% was written basically on his, on his, so he was like, yeah, like if you want to do something, like there's no, I mean, you can do it.
1: You can, you have to find the time. If you have the time, some people don't, they have other commitments that just sap them emotionally and they just don't have, they don't have it. And it's not a, it is what it is. Their life is difficult. And I, got i know plenty of people who wish they could do a lot of things but their life you know tragically doesn't allow for it but i'm lucky enough that i that i have the time to do it
0: yeah yeah, yeah for sure as i've been interviewing people i find that it's been um encouraging I, i'd like to say it. like how many people find the time like we were talking about like you write at night you know right. you said about seven o'clock so like um I interviewed one lady and she teaches school and she writes at four in the morning and I interviewed one gentleman and he doesn't get to write till 11 at night and he gets up at five to go to work. Like, yeah. yeah. So you you do have to sometimes make sacrifices, but you know, if it's something you want to do and you're able to, then yeah, go for it.
1: Yeah. And, and you have to love it. And, and I love, I love getting to write and I love creating things. I've wanted to, write these kind of worlds since I was 15 years old but you know things get in the way like college med school residency fellowship children raising them and so it wasn't until um I think it was in 2014 that my first book came out um A Warrior's Path and so you know I was already in my 40s by then but that was when I could actually sit down and write so I know a lot of people are a lot younger than I am who are writing and and are successful at it, and they're so blessed to to have that uh, creative outlet and the ability to do what they did or do what they're doing at, at such a younger age than I did.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you, as we said, your full time job, father, mm-hmm. you know, and your writer. How did, do you have any tips for for finding balance and and being able to juggle all the things that you want to do?
1: Mary well. That's the advice I can give anyone is marry well and uh and you'll be all right so i I always that's kind of facetious, but it's really the truth you know it's if you want to stay single, then you don't have any commitments it's all on you you can your time is yours. you can do whatever you want with it as long as you have the help to do what you want to do. but when you get married, there's somebody else in the picture when you have kids, there's children, and if you and your partner, your spouse aren't on the same page and and you know the kids take the time then that's what it is and you have to make them the priority hopefully but it helps when you have an awesome spouse to help also take some of that burden and so I was lucky in that regard too good or I am lucky in that regard
0: (laughs) yeah Yeah, uh, we'll we'll edit that out so she doesn't see it Well, we already had
1: our anniversary, our twenty-second anniversary dinner yesterday, so we're good.
0: Oh, okay, congratulations on your twenty-second! That's awesome. So it doesn't sound like you have time for many hobbies. Um, if if you do, what what kind of are they, and do they influence your writing? Oh, uh,
1: if if I had more time, there's no question I'd be building furniture. That would be. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. So I act. That was this was actually a choice I made. Um, I've built. Um, Actually, you can see it right there, that filing cabinet. I built that, which nice. was a little bit. So you can see it a little bit. But anyway, I built that out of uh, curly maple and mahogany. And so um, I built a king-size bed, a coffee table, and a desk and a hutch in this um, filing cabinet. And that was actually, I love building furniture but I had to make a choice like write, build furniture, choose one hobby. And I don't want it. I loved writing more than building furniture, but that's what I would be doing. I'd be be building furniture.
0: I love that because you understand woodworking. So if if you write a character, you, you can get that right. And so
1: Yeah. I haven't had to do something like that, but wood is such a temperamental material. I mean, it just twists on you. It moves almost like water. You know, you could... You could file it down, you think you've planed it perfect, and then you, you do something to it. It's magical. It's just, where'd that, where'd that warp come from? And uh, you think you measured everything, you got your angles right, and it doesn't fit. It's just such a temperamental material, but it is fun to work with when you get it right.
0: Well, have you ever had anything similar um, happen while you're writing a story? Like yep. if the character's just kind of gone off and Absolutely. done something you weren't expected?
1: The entire cast in the outcast was supposed to be quite a bit different than it ended up. So I have a, a species uh, of characters who were basically supposed to be like my version of orcs or orakai. And instead, the, the leader of this group is watching his um, troops and is just absolutely disgusted with them and hates them. He hates who he is and how he's, his life has been. And then everything in that entire series changed on a dime because of that. And oh, really? So, yeah, the, the entire series changed. There was another character who was supposed to fall in love with uh, with one of the other characters, and, and she said, no, I don't. Uh, I don't love him. I never did. And her, her uh, arc completely changed because of, of that decision she made. And then... Even combining these worlds together, they're called the anchored worlds. You know, there's the Cats and the Outcasts, Chronicles of William Wilde, and Instrument of Omens. It's my, I guess the most famous thing is the Cosmere um, Universe by Brandon Sanderson. It's my Cosmere. They're all linked together. I call mine the anchored worlds. And, you know, there's a reason for that. But um, it wasn't supposed to exist. At least I didn't intend it to exist. I'd finished the cast in the outcast, and I was typing away the first scene in William Wilde, and he's walking through a high school. Yeah, right. It, there's there's these two mythical worlds that don't exist, and I'm talking about high school. Yes, it's 1980s United States, Cincinnati, Ohio. That's the initial setting for William Wilde. So somehow I bring it together. But he's walking through a high school, and he sees a woman, a, a freshman. She looks lost. And she introduces herself and a character from the cast and the outcast just barged into my head and said, that's me. All right. And so I typed her name in and just said, I wonder where this is going. And I just followed it.
0: Interesting. That's fantastic. Let's go back to your writing habits a little bit. Do you outline what your story is going to be uh, or do you just have kind of guideposts or do you just let both it fly? It both.
1: I, I want to have guideposts and I want to outline, and I, I always know how it ends. But, you know, if you're traveling along, you get to your guideposts, but then you might see some bright, shiny little object, and you squirrel away and look at it, and then suddenly your guideposts are gone, and then you got to create new ones, and that sometimes happens, like what I just described. Uh, but in general, I like the the book I'm working on. I did um, I outlined the first. 25 chapters and I'm typing away at it and so far I'm following my outline but I can already feel it moving and it shifting away and the chapters to come are going to have to be different which is why I didn't outline the whole book I only outlined the first probably you know half of it because I know it's going to move on it's
0: kind of like wood you said you kind of have the ending has that ever changed or is it you've been able to get to where you want to go each time
1: Now, the endings have been pretty solid each time. And so uh, I've been happy. But, I mean, William Wilde, the ending of it was was an open note uh, because it's it's complete as a story, but as a world and as the characters, they still have more uh, to live. And I just, I haven't gotten to that yet. I wanted to let that percolate a bit before I got to it. But the ending was how I intended it to be but there was a little bit of a difference because some of the characters that weren't supposed to be there that I didn't intend to be there showed up.
0: That's fascinating. You said sometimes, you know, a bright shiny object goes, um, is there and you go off towards it. Have you ever had the experience of going towards that and finding out like, it just doesn't work. So you have to backtrack. Yeah. And, and how, how do you, how do you kind of manage that? Um, cause I, I think some people could feel discouraged and like oh, I have to, throw away these 20,000 words or 30,000 words or whatever like how do you yeah manage that discouragement
1: so I I follow the the bright
0: shiny object
1: and then if it's to me it, I guess it I guess I can feel it a little bit like is this going to lead somewhere or is this just going to be a dud and so I've never gotten to the position of writing 20,000 words and realized I've written myself into a trap I've written, you know, maybe a couple of thousand words and realized this is not going to work for the rest of the story, for the world building to work. It's going to be too complicated. The character is kind of boring and I'm bored. If I'm bored writing it, it's going to be boring to read it. And so I don't push past anything like that. If I'm bored, I'm done. That's kind of how I know it's not working. I, I don't have to go any deeper than that. I couldn't imagine writing 20,000 words and finding no way to use them. That would that would break my heart. I wouldn't know what to do with myself if I... I mean, I, there was one time I, I wrote a scene. It was only 2,000 words, and, and I loved the scene. And something happened when I was saving the file, and it didn't save, and I thought I did. And then when I discovered I hadn't, it took me three days to write again because I was so disheartened by just losing those 2,000 words. So 20,000, it would probably be a month before I could write again. So I don't, I don't have good advice on how to deal with that, <laughs> except don't do it.
0: <laughs> well, I, I was talking to an author um, on Tuesday, and he said that when he wrote his book, uh, the, first, the first novel in his book, he gave it to some agents and stuff, and they just tore it down. So he had to get rid of basically 60% of it.
1: He oh, got wow. rid of
0: characters that, you know, he wrote about, plots and stuff, and, and kind of dissected it and wrote it again. Yeah. And so in, in, when your first draft um, happened uh, for the first book, was it the Cast and Outcast first book that you wrote first, yes. that came out first? Yeah, that's correct. How much editing did you have to do?
1: A lot. I mean, I, I probably do six or seven drafts before I'm comfortable. And even now, I I've never read reread the cast and the outcast since um, publication and when I have I just kind of wince like gosh I'd like to go back and redo some of that because I think I I could make it better and I think all authors feel that way I remember Patricia McKillop making the same complaint about Riddle Master of Head except she put it as I read it as I would a foreign story and it's myself from 25 years ago. And she, she wrote one of the great books of all time in the fantasy genre and, and she feels that way. So that's the one breath that lets me know, okay, I didn't completely screw that up. It's about six or seven edits. And then I have a, at least one editor look at it and tell me where they think it, that works and doesn't work. and then um, And then I change the things that they suggest if I feel it fits the story.
0: Was it a challenge to find a good editor?
1: Yeah, it it uh, it was hard to find one that fit with uh, with what I'm trying to do, and and I think I've got a, a good editor. I've I've gone around to a couple of different editors. I know my favorite editor is my sister because she's she's excellent at picking up characters who are behaving poorly in terms of how they've behaved previously in the book, or just Not behaving, not even rationally, but just—they're just not reacting in an appropriate fashion. So, uh, she always reads my books, and then I I think I've—I found a a good editor and a good uh, and a good editor to catch the grammar mistakes.
0: Yeah, because you need both, and I think as a new author, like I didn't think about this. When you think editing, you think high school. Okay, I need to put a period here and a comma here, and this isn't spelled right, but. There's also an edit where you talk about structure and like like what you said with your sister to um, pick up character flaws or make sure people are acting consistent.
1: Correct, yeah. You need all of that help. And it's real easy to believe that what you wrote was perfect or just really good. And, you know, I, I fell into that trap, I'm sure. And looking back at my first book, it was so awful. I mean, it, it really deserved to be burned. And uh, I figuratively did so by just uh, rewriting it. And I think I probably kept 20 words in total in the same location. Everything else was completely new because it was such a bad book. And even that second draft was, was awful enough that it just needed to be tossed in the trash and never see the light of day. It took me about six books, I think, six tries or four tries on that book and not making it work. And then two or three other books that didn't work before I finally got my feet under me and I was writing.
0: When you were writing and trying to, to break through and, and get your first book out, did you have any resources that you looked up, like any story or any books that, that helped you out, or did you just try and fail?
1: Man, I, I had no idea what I was doing. I mean, I, I had cover art that I hired a friend to do, and I still love it, but it, it's not going to sell a book. I mean, it's beautiful art, but it's not beautiful cover art. I didn't know anything about marketing. I had no idea what I was doing. I you know asked a few people to read it, they read it, reviewed it on Goodreads and that was really about about it uh, as far as what I did. I I wrote the book, had it edited, had someone edit it, and then I released it. Uh, you know after I put it together and I released it on, on a couple different places had a paper uh paperback print on demand and that was it and this was in 20 late 2013 early 20 it was 2014 and um i remember when the book sold 100 copies i went out and celebrated with my family because i i didn't think anybody would read the book but here 100 people had bought it so it was just really exciting but um never was just luck Now, with everything I'm releasing since that time, I'm much more structured about the marketing because you have two choices. It almost is binary about what you do with your book. Either you love your writing and you love your book and that's enough. That's good enough. And you don't have to worry about anything else. That's a completely proper attitude to have. You can release it and it probably won't sell at all. And if you're fine with that, Great. But if you actually want to make a living as a writer and get paid to do it, then there's a second business that you have to learn. So you're learning the craft of writing. That's a joy. But then you got to learn the craft of publishing and marketing, which is a chore. And marketing is where you have to build ads and, and build some sort of enthusiasm on people that, why would somebody pick up your book? Out of the millions that are available, and that's not something I enjoy, uh, but it is something that I do. Um, that's just because I want people to buy my books.
0: Yeah, and and like you said, the that that first group that you talked about that just wants to publish and, and you know that's it. Like, kudos to them, Hats off. Yeah, if I was independently wealthy
1: and had no reason to worry about any money at all, and I'm just writing. For fun and building furniture for fun, and just there's no no worries from that regard. I would probably do the same yeah. thing.
0: But for those of you who want to be an author and make a living at it, you have to realize that you're in charge of everything. Is well, if you're if you're indie published.
1: Well, even if you're traditionally published, you know they they don't necessarily give you as much help with the marketing as um, as they used to. And a lot of that is still on the author to build fan enthusiasm and bring book awareness to, to different people. That's still expected, especially if you're a mid-list or a new author with the traditional publishing house. That work is still required. And, um, and so if you think you're not going to have to do it, well... I don't think that that's likely. I think you're still going to have to do it. The problem is is that the tools that you have might be a little bit more limited in, in how you go about that because, um, you know, I purchase my own ads on Facebook and Amazon. I don't know how a traditional author would be able to do that. And that, that has really helped significantly with bringing the word out and putting out the signal uh, for my books. And without those things, I'm not sure how I would do
0: that. And you have a little bit more to do. I mean, you had to have to come up with a cover that would look good on Amazon to stand out and to sell. Whereas a traditional author, I've heard that sometimes they don't have any say at all of what they look like. You know, the, the publisher just picks it, yeah. you know, and you have to do the editing. Yeah, I
1: have noticed that a lot of traditional books these days are just using stock art that they do photo manipulation. And I, i'm not a huge fan of that i I think it's i mean i know how much that costs to do decent photo manipulation using stock art it's it's not that expensive i don't think it's that great either
0: so yeah as an independent publisher you know there is a a business side and you have to have do all aspects of it and you you have audible books too don't you that's right so you have to pick a narrator to to do that
1: yeah that was a lucky happenstance i was um Trying to fit so for the my first two books, A Warrior's Path and A Warrior's Knowledge from Cast and the Outcast, they were both out in ebook, and it was finally at, at, at when the second book came out that I was told your covers probably are holding you back. You need different covers. I loved the covers that I had, but they just weren't like they weren't good enough for the market. So I got new covers, and then another author friend said. You ever think of doing an audiobook? Because uh, if you do, you got to find the right narrator. And, and long story short, he convinced me to to put an audiobook out. And so, in looking at it, I wanted a young voice that was popular. And so, I emailed Nick Padell, I cold emailed him, and I asked him, "Which could you narrate my book?" <laughs> and Nick said, "Sure." <laughs> And so Nick Padell is my narrator. He's been the narrator of all of my books.
0: You know, I found it interesting how generous people are, like you. You know, this is a cold email that I emailed you. You could have easily deleted it. And yet you said yes, and you agreed. And many others have as well. And I've yeah. been surprised at how generous people have been.
1: That's been how I've felt about the public, the writing community that I'm a part of. I mean, I... I know some traditional authors, but it's almost like its own little ecosystem. Um, But I know a lot of indie authors. And we share lots of information about cover artists, contracts, uh, advertising. And it's just, you can't help but be generous when you're surrounded by generous people. I love the people that I I know. They're wonderful.
0: Well, and I I do think there is a, a reciprocity with it. You know, call it karma, call it whatever you will. Yeah, I think the more the generous you are, the more it comes back to you. Right, absolutely. Especially with the small. Well, I mean, there's there's tons of authors out there, but it it feels small. And everybody that I've talked to helps people out. In fact, like sometimes when I get off interviews and you know we have a little conversation afterwards, they're like, "Oh, you need to contact this person, this person, this person." I'll let them know that you're con they're contacted you so that you can set up more interviews. And it's just been amazing.
1: Yeah, it's it's uh, it is a it is wonderful to be a part of this community.
0: You said your books are inspired by the Indian culture and right. the Asian culture. Is that correct? Yes. How much is inspired of it?
1: So, in in the cast and the outcast, uh, in my in my family um, from Andhra Pradesh Telugu, we have different names for like if uh, my sister, she's no, she's my older sister. I she's my akka. Now, if I was older than her, I would be Anaya, but I'm younger, so she calls me by my given name. So I'm not supposed to call her by her given name. She's supposed to be Akka. Now, my wife, because it's her husband's older sister, she has a different name versus if it was, if I had a younger sister, she'd have a different name. She'd be her Wadhama. And so there's, there's a, a lot of different familial ties where every individual has their own name, so to speak, depending on how they're related to you. So my mom's older brother would have a different name than my mom's younger brother, for what I would call them. i call her older brother, Malia. So anyway, um, all of that's incorporated into the cast and the outcasts. All their familial ties are part of their language. The food that they eat is the food that I grew up with. And some of the um, philosophical aspects in terms of um, the names of the creator, uh, that's that's pulled from Hinduism. So those kind of things are... Um, and, and, the, and, of course, the characters themselves, they look Indian. They are, you know, they're darker skinned like me, and they, they look like my people. So I don't make a big point about it. I just say it once and then everyone else knows that. Yeah. So they're Indian looking and, and that's how it goes.
0: I, I love this because I'm reading fantasy books now and, and even science fiction books where it's not just token based. I mean, and I say that as in like, you know, upper England, up, you know, Northern France kind of inspired, um, you know, you have, uh, an Indian culture based into it. We talked about Bradley, uh, Bollier and if I, um, butch his name, I'm sorry bradley if you ever see this um you know he has egyptian uh base um i i talked to jc kong and his is you know chinese asian and i I interviewed um john scovran recently and his is more polish and russian you know and he he has scottish and 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 spanish in there so like these cultures are being brought to the forefront in a fantasy setting and i and i i'm loving it because you get to learn more about it yeah
1: I think it's fascinating and wonderful that, you know, there was a time back in the 80s where everything was Tolkien-esque fantasy. It started with uh, Sword of Shannara, and then, you know, there's always been an undercurrent of non-Tolkien-esque fantasy, but the popular stuff is very much Tolkien-esque with high elves and dwarves and that sort of thing. Um, And then, like I said, I don't really consider Wheel of Time in that same in that, same, um, in that same way to be Tolkien-esque, it, it feels different to me. It felt fresh. Yeah. And, um, and then, of course, George R. R. Martin, although his was War and the Roses, it definitely didn't feel like something Tolkien would have written. In some ways, I think we're kind of moving back towards some of that high fantasy in some areas, but we're just not making it with European settings and European-based cultures. And I think that's fantastic.
0: So your second book comes out March 25th. Is yep. that correct? That's right. Uh, uh, this next series, it's a special day.
1: So the first, the first book in the series came out July 20th because that's the anniversary of the moon landing. March 25th is supposedly the day when the ring of power was tossed into Mount Doom. So there you, yeah. At least that's what Tolkien scholars have deduced by figuring out you know timelines and blah blah blah. blah. March 25th. I have no idea if they're right or not but I'm going with it.
0: So, so go out and buy that book if you haven't. This this interview won't be out before then, but if you have a chance to pick it up, go, go ahead and and Davis, go ahead and tell us where they can contact you, website, social sure.
1: media. Sure. So, like um that. my website is uh, com. You there's a link in there to contact me. Uh, I usually I almost always answer everything when I get a message from Facebook. Uh just Look me up there, Davis Ashura, and uh, and and you can email me. Well, you can find that on my website. Uh, and those are probably the best ways. Look for me on Facebook or look for me on my website. And book two, Memories of Prophecies, is coming out on March twenty fifth. First in the series was A Testament of Steel,
0: and get all of them because all the books are all the yep. series are connected. And these are big
1: so. books. The second book is I think seven hundred pages long. First book was around. 562, 600, something like that. So you'll have plenty of time to read. I was going to say, it's not so much you'd have plenty of time to read, you just have, you would have plenty to read.
0: Plenty to sink your teeth into. Um, I know this pandemic um, has put a hiccup in things, but um, if things get sorted out, are you planning on going anywhere or any conventions or signings or anything like that? Oh, gosh, yeah. So um, Dragon
1: Con is Christmas uh, down in Atlanta, Georgia over Labor Day. If you ever have a chance I've never really explored much of Dragon Con other than the literature track, you know, because that's the kind of fantasy I like. I I don't dress up and I don't play a lot of games. um, And trying to get into some of the movie and TV showing stuff, golly, the lines are just way down the block and I don't have enough time to stand in line that long. But just the literature track alone, going to the vendors and seeing all that stuff and being with my friends while we're doing it, we cover probably 10 or 12 miles a day walking around dragon con and we get there at around nine o'clock we leave at 11 and it's it's just one of the best things ever so yeah if the pandemic is safe enough that dragon con can be held that's where i'm going over labor day
0: perfect so if you guys see him there say hi
1: absolutely i'll I'll be the, the one with two other nerd friend authors, Bryce O'Connor and Dirk Ashton.
0: Well, uh, Davis, I appreciate you getting on and talking with me today.
1: Absolutely, it was great. Have, it was great to have to to be on here.
0: Well, thank you. Like I said, you could have easily deleted that email, so I appreciate it. Well, you're more than welcome, and thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the Troy Podcast. Please subscribe, like, and share with your friends.